We're blessed to have Brett Wagner back again with us today. Brett will be preaching from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. This is the word of the Lord. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that, saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and you should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again. And it's always a great privilege and pleasure to open God's word with you. If you have your Bible still open there to Matthew 18, that is going to be the focus of of our time this morning as we consider God's word together as we have just heard it read. And being mindful of what we need this morning is not just information, it's not just bullet points to jot down in our journal, not even just the experience of being here. What we are in need of is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit to show us Christ and to transform our hearts. So would you bear with me? Let's have a brief word of prayer for that help. Our God and our Father, we come to you this morning and we do, we long for your word to be effectual in our lives. And so, Father, we're asking that you would enable us to hear and to receive this morning by faith. And Lord, specifically, we're asking that you would grant us a renewed love for your truth, that we might lay it up in our hearts, and ultimately that we might put it to practice in our lives. And so we ask and we pray that you would do this by the power of your spirit, for the sake of Christ. Amen. Well, I'm convinced in that in reading through the Gospels, that Jesus is most definitely a realist. And by that I mean that he is not this downcast pessimist, and nor when you read the accounts here given to us in Scripture, is he the hopelessly naive optimist. Because if you read through the accounts given to us in the scriptures, you will find that our Lord simultaneously preaches 
the good news of the gospel, declaring and promising the hope and the renewal of all things. And yet, even within the same page or even in the same account that he expects that there will be sin and that there will be offense even amongst his followers, he's most definitely a realist. And here in the context of chapter 18, if you glance back to the previous portion that was not only just read, but the earlier portions of the chapter, you may remind yourself that the majority of the instruction here in chapter 18 revolves around how we are to relate to our own sin and the sin of others. Christ begins by teaching there in verses 8 and 9 that we must be ruthless in the very things that would cause us to sin, the very temptations that would lead us into sin. And then in verses 15 through 20, hopefully a familiar passage, we're given a very specific instruction on how we're to uh, approach one another as we have offense between us. If another brother or sister sins, how are we to pursue them? And how are we to go about seeking reconciliation as brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, that's well and good. But what happens when the one who sins against us repents and asks for forgiveness? What happens when it works? What happens if they sin against us and on more than one occasion God grants repentance and they ask our forgiveness? What do we do then? What do we do when there is continued sin and continued repentance at some point, just as Peter asks here, we imagine that there ought to be some limit, that I will go this far and no farther. How many times? Maybe you found yourself wondering that, or maybe you have a very specific situation in mind as I even repeat those words. Well, Peter most definitely had this question, and he asked it to Christ directly. It's helpful to know that according to rabbinical teaching, the sort of teaching that that Peter probably would have been familiar with, it was understood and commonly taught that you ought to forgive an offender up to three times. And then after that, you could write them off. You were not obligated beyond those three times. Well, Peter's been around Christ enough to know that Jesus seems to require a bit more than religious tradition, as Jesus has just laid that open in the Sermon on the Mount of what God really requires. So noticing that, Peter, that Christ seems to require more, he simply more than doubles what he has heard taught. And he goes to Jesus and he asks, is seven times, is seven times a sufficient allowance for this sinning brother? And what is Jesus' response? No, not seven, Peter, but 70 times seven. Now, it's good to keep in mind that Christ is speaking uh, metaphorically, in a sense here, saying, in essence, Peter, the expectation of forgiveness is exponentially more than you are imagining. In fact, he says, let me tell you a story. Let me paint a picture for you, Peter, to describe what forgiveness amongst my followers is to look like. So the issue before us here this morning is what does forgiveness look like in the kingdom of heaven? It's an important question, 
Because I think if we're observant people, you recognize that this idea of forgiveness, it's not uniform in all cultures, uh, in all homes, even in all contexts. And by that I mean, uh, in some places, forgiveness is extended, but only to those who can somehow offset their offense by some sort of bribe, by some sort of wealth, by some sort of um, favor that could be then offered in return. The scales that are tipped towards guilt are offset somehow, and that's how forgiveness works in some places. In other contexts, forgiveness is actually earned by your groveling or by your humiliation. And if it's deemed appropriate or weighty enough compared to the offense, well then we'll grant forgiveness. Maybe you even grew up in a context where forgiveness was most certainly extended and even verbally communicated to you but held over your head for any number or measure of days. Well, this is not how forgiveness looks according to Christ. This parable is meant to teach us what forgiveness looks like in the kingdom of heaven amongst fellow citizens between brothers and sisters. And this is tremendously important because we must always be going to the scriptures so that our understanding and our practice are shaped not by our experience and not by what culture would dictate to us and say this is what this looks like, but by God's word. And what could be more central and more foundational to our understanding and our practice of Christianity than this matter of forgiveness? I would venture to say that if we get forgiveness wrong, we get everything wrong. Christ forgives sinners, and forgiven sinners forgive other sinners. So what we have here before us this morning is really a radical promise of forgiveness. And then I want us to look at the radical expectation of forgiveness. The promise of forgiveness and the expectation of forgiveness. Look back at your copy of God's word to look at verse 23 where we see this, really the radical promise of forgiveness is laid before us. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Well, the emphasis in this story is most certainly upon the unjust servant, which that account follows. We must not overlook what this illustration is meant to teach us about the radical promise of forgiveness shown in the actions of this king. Do we really understand what is said and what is meant in the scriptures in this promise that is extended to all who would hear and believe in regards to forgiveness? 
Consider what this story teaches us about forgiveness and specifically as understood in terms of debt. Notice what Christ says, that this debt in the story that he paints was owed to who? It was owed to a king. The king has all the right and he has all the authority to demand payment of this debt. There is no one higher in a kingdom than a king. And therefore, if a debt is owed to a king, there ought to be this great concern because he has every right and he has all the authority to say, pay what you owe. So that would be hanging over your head. He says that this debt in this story is not only owed to a king, but that this debt is enormous. A talent is a measurement of weight. And it's actually the largest measurement of weight in the Hebrew context. Uh, 10,000 talents that's given in the story here. It's an absurd amount. It's intended to be understood in in the realm of, of hyperbole. If one talent is roughly equivalent to 20 years salary, then this debt that the story is unfolding here is so enormous that there is no possible scenario that you could work hard enough, you could save enough or invest wise enough to somehow pay off this debt. It is absurd. But also notice what is set forth in this story is that the cost of this debt is painfully humiliating. Unable to pay this debt, this servant here is going to be thrown into debtor's prison right alongside his wife and his children. The point of debtor's prison was not just simply to work off the financial obligation of that debt, but it really uh, served as a punishment. It was quite common in that Greco-Roman world to imprison debtors. When you think about it, if this was practice in our day, it would prevent defaulters from making an escape, and it also proved this great deterrent against debt if you could end up in debtor's prison for unpaid debts that were called to your account. Because at any moment, your creditor could demand full payment, and if you're not able to repay that debt, then your option is debtor's prison. Now, can you imagine if all of a sudden, on the same day, all of your creditors clamped down on all of your outstanding debt and demanded payment by close of business today. Your mortgage company calls and said, this is what you owe. It's owe by close of business today. Your auto loan reaches out and says, you owe by the end of today. All of your student loans, not forgiven, they must be repaid today. Every single debt that you owed must be paid by end of day. Or, unable to pay, you have this option here, as Christ tells in the story, that you will be taken along with your beautiful family to a labor camp to be imprisoned for the rest of your days. Now put yourself in that position and think of the guilt, the shame, the humiliation of the cost of your debt. Can you imagine the the guilt and the shame, husbands, as you look at your wife and see her blisters and her aching back, as you see your daughter crippled under the weight of her labor, and you see your son's malnourishment, and you know, my debt did this. My inability to pay what I owe brought this humiliation. 
That's the sort of scenario that Christ is painting here in this parable in regards to the cost of this, cost of this debt. So let me ask you and connect the dots here. Have you ever felt the weight of your own sin as the burden of debt? You know what debt feels like because we are Americans. Debt, over time, with enough of it, it feels very much like sinking quickstand. It pulls you down that you are unable to release yourself from its grasp and it grows and as it mounts greater and it compounds, this sense of, of hopelessness also grows stronger. Your debts feel like a massive anchor that are, that are pulling you down to the bottom of the sea. Now, can you imagine with all of that, can you imagine what it would be like to hear that the total weight, the total obligation and burden of that debt was forgiven, it's absolved, it is completely and entirely removed to the last penny. I ask you, do you know the weight of sin and the joy of forgiveness along those lines? This is exactly what Christ's illustration speaks of here. Instead of punishing the debtor, he's merciful. And he pardons he releases, he forgives. And what a wonderful illustration of the weight of sin and the joy of forgiveness. We hear of this in the prophet Micah. In chapter 7, as Micah declares, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Or the call to praise that's given at the beginning of Psalm 103, where we are told, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul and forget not all his benefits. Why? Well, he is the one who forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Are you living in light of the wonderful promise of God's forgiveness of sin? Have you felt the weight of the debt of your sin, as well as the relief that comes from hearing the announcement of pardon. This is the central issue of the gospel. Sin is this unbearable weight. It is this debt that we are liable for. It is the, the evidence that we are unable and unwilling to give God the glory that he deserves. That's what sin is. And yet, the gospel announces that Christ is this unbelievably merciful king who pardons such debt. In the midst of his own ministry, in the midst of a tremendous season of heaviness and misery, struggling under the weight of conviction of sin, Charles Spurgeon, he found refuge 
in the promise of Jeremiah 31, 34, which reads, I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. And in response to that, he said, print every word of that in diamonds. If you want to highlight anything, highlight that in diamonds because of how precious that promise is. Christ is owed everything, all that we have, by the very nature of who he is. And yet, by the very nature of who we are, we are these massive debtors unable to give him what he deserves. And what this parable says in in illustration is that in his mercy, Christ absolves our debt by paying it himself, forgives our sin, and releases us from its burden. This is the great promise of Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This radical promise of forgiveness is the backdrop of Christ's response to Peter's question, and it is the very foundation of the Christian experience. At the heartbeat and at the center of the Christian hope and the Christian faith is this radical promise of forgiveness. But why does Christ tell this story? He tells us to to set up the second part of this story, which gives to us the radical expectation of forgiveness. The radical expectation of forgiveness goes on. Look back at verse 28. In contrast to what was just said, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Pay what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Now this is one of those parables, one of those stories where the injustice is so blatant that the point is just inescapably obvious to us as we hear this told. Such behavior is so hypocritical, so incongruent that it it grabs the the attention of the fellow servants as they see what had just happened and see how this fellow servant treats another servant that they go and tell the master and that it actually invokes the wrath of this king himself. Notice the, the inconsistency of this man here in Christ's parable. First of all, notice who he is. He's a servant. Unlike the king, 
who has real authority and real right, this man is just a servant. He's not in a position of honor or authority, yet he, he violently demands that his fellow servant pay his debt. In a sense, you could say he's actually just a pauper acting like a prince. And the double standard could not be more explicit here. But notice also, in comparison, these debts, this debt here is, is meaningless. One denarius was a Roman coin. It's the equivalent of one day's wage for a soldier or just a, what we would call a blue-collar worker. The debt that is owed here is essentially three months' wage. And it's significant, certainly. But it's a mere drop in the bucket compared to the trillion-dollar debt that this man has just been forgiven of. Notice the inconsistency of how ruthless this servant is. He demands payment, even though he was just released from his debt, and the king's words, forgiven, are still ringing in his ears when he chokes his fellow servant and says, pay what you owe. Now, we hear that, and we are brought to this place where we say the stench of hypocrisy here is overwhelming. The injustice in this story is unbelievable. And according to Jesus' story, this man is nothing less than wicked. Verse 32. And his behavior provokes the king's anger. Verse 34. Now, as you read this story, what does it do to you? Most likely, you agree with the, the king's assessment here, and we would all nod our heads and say, how could anyone live so disjointed, or how could anybody be so blind to the hypocrisy of their own standards? But keep in mind the context of this parable. Why is Jesus telling this? Well, it's an answer to a question. It's an answer to Peter's question. How often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? According to this parable, what Christ is driving at is the straightforward answer that would say, when should you ever not forgive, considering what you yourself have received? And it is here at this point that the story of Jesus becomes a bit more personal, doesn't it? We're not just mere observers listening to the story, but as this comes down to its final verses, we begin to feel the finger of application pointing straight at our own chest. For we know when we are honest with ourselves that we often rejoice in the lavish mercy of God, even as we sung of it this morning. But we become misers in our dealings with others. We know how often we relish the forgiveness of God toward us, but we hold others captive in their shortcomings, in their sins, and their obligations toward us. It's at this point that we need to understand that the Bible contains both indicatives and imperatives. An indicative, it's a promise, it's an announcement, it's a fact. And an imperative is a command. It's an obligation. It's a requirement. Scripture contains both. Now, 
The problem comes when we detach the two, when we detach the indicative from the imperative, when we disconnect the promise from the command, when we emphasize one and neglect the other. Some people love to bang on the imperatives of Scripture. Be a servant. Love one another. Honor God. Be holy. And say nothing of the promise. Others mistakenly speak only of the indicative, announcing that God is full of mercy, that Christ forgives sin, that he is long-suffering, saying nothing of the commands of Scripture and how the two are related. Please understand, to be gospel-centered does not mean that we speak only of the promises of Scripture. Commands have their place. Obedience is required. What we could say here in response to this parable is that Christ is the merciful king who forgives debt and releases us from the bondage of sin, and Christ also commands that we forgive our brother from the heart. We hear the same emphasis in Colossians 3. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, promise, so you also must forgive. Obedience. What we could say then is that those who receive the extraordinary mercy of God should then respond to others, to others out of that mercy that they themselves have received. If we know anything of the king's mercy, then we are those who show this mercy when others offend us. And if you cannot forgive others, then you do not truly grasp the forgiveness that Christ extends to you. This, then, is, is really the heart of the matter. We struggle with responding to others with unlimited forgiveness because we do not understand the magnitude of the mercy that the King has had upon us. For when we see our sin against God as nominal, justifiable, understandable, shruggable, forgiveness then is hollow. It's cheap. And our awe of this God, who is the king who forgive, our awe plummets through the floor, and we just end up yawning anytime there's some talk of forgiveness. But when we see our sin against God as a massive debt, when we see it as it is a foul offense, as we see it as cosmic treason, then the sin of others is somehow put in proper perspective for what it is. How often should I forgive my brother? When should you not forgive, considering what you yourself have received? It would be as if you somehow, in your foolishness, burnt down the entire Tahoe 
national forest. All of it. But you, somehow, are mercifully pardoned. And then in celebration, a friend comes over to your house, rejoicing to see that you have been pardoned and lovingly cooks you breakfast. But in cooking you breakfast, mistakenly burns the toast. And as that friend sets that plate before you with blackened toast, they say, I am so sorry about the toast. Will you forgive me? Now, at that moment, what can you honestly say as the embers of burning forest are still within your nostrils? What is that compared to this? The entire point of this parable, of this story, it rests upon the apex of verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Such a statement as this is meant to snap us out of our lethargic coma and confront us with the life-changing implications of the gospel. This is the point. It is inconceivable that a person whose entire well-being is owed to the wonderful gift of forgiveness would refuse to forgive others because forgiven sinners forgive fellow sinners. In fact, the person who lives as this wicked servant and refuses to forgive his fellow brother or sister proves that they themselves have never actually experienced forgiveness. How could they? Now, granted, there are certain situations where full restoration of fellowship is not always possible reasons of safety or even just the reasons of, of consequence because of certain sin. Restoration is not always possible. But in every circumstance, in every offense, what I would call the spirit of forgiveness is required of us towards anyone and anyone who would sin against us. Meaning this, we must think of them and relate to them in this spirit of of mercy being settled in our own minds that we are on the edge of our seat ready to leap up and extend forgiveness in that moment. You see, the Christian is somebody who moves toward the offended, offending brother or sister, not out of bitterness to enact justice, but out of mercy, looking to extend forgiveness. This is how the kingdom of heaven works. The citizens of this kingdom are by definition recipients of mercy. And therefore, as citizens, each must forgive wholeheartedly, not grudgingly. What this means, brothers and sisters, is that forgiveness is the fruit of our conversion. By his grace... We are enabled from the heart to forgive. This is not a scenario where it just guilts people into saying, look how gracious God was to you, and you can't even be gracious to your friends. Boy, I never. 
This is not a guilt trip. What this is, is the reality that forgiven sinners are forgiven because of the gracious, converting work of God. And therefore, it's not just a matter of, do you have enough willpower, or do you have a soft enough or tender conscience, but you have the very spirit of God and the grace of God, which enables a Christian to forgive. Please be clear on this. If you are here and you're not a Christian, and you're hearing this talk of forgiveness and the expectation of what it means to be a Christian and extend forgiveness, do not think for a moment that as followers of Christ, we somehow forgive because we're just nicer people. Or that we somehow forgive because we have greater willpower. Disciples of Jesus forgive because they have the grace of God. That is why Christ can say, you must forgive. Because it is incompatible with one who's been renewed by grace to not forgive from the heart. If all of this is true and all this is what Christ is aiming at, then we have some questions we need to ask ourselves, don't we? If I claim to be a beneficiary of the forgiveness of Christ, do I deal with others in a lack of mercy? Do any of these statements or scenarios sound familiar? I will show you affection. I will gladly show you love once you prove yourself worthy of my love. Or we say, maybe not with our words, but our actions. I will be cold and withdrawn until I feel I've sufficiently punished you for your offense, and then most definitely I'll forgive you. I would never treat you the way that you have treated me, so I'm going to write you off as idiotic and worthless until you change, and then I'll forgive you. To this, Jesus says, you wicked servant. And such wickedness is to be confessed and to be repented of and to plead for mercy. What this is driving at is forcing me to ask the question, is there anyone that I am unwilling to forgive while simultaneously clinging to the unexplainable forgiveness that Christ has given to me? If that person that you're thinking of in your mind, that has humiliated you, unjustly accused you, smugly dismissed you, walked into this room right now and pleaded your forgiveness and repented, how would you respond? The fountainhead of all forgiveness, it flows down from the mercy that we have first received in Christ. So let me ask you, do you want to be released from the bondage of unforgiveness and the bitterness of resentment? Then do not look and become fixated upon the cost of your debtor. Instead, look at your own debt and the merciful king who has released you from what you're owed. Forgiveness is not going to somehow just spring up by digging around in the soil of my offender's sin. Forgiveness sprouts and bears fruit only in the rich soil of God's mercy that is laid upon our own sin. We are enabled to release others of the debts that they owe, and we are then willing to relinquish the punishment that we want to mete out 
only when, only when that we consider the debt of our own sin and how we have been spared from the punishment that we deserve. Brothers and sisters, the command to forgive one another, it's not burdensome when it is illuminated by the, by the brilliant light of, of Christ's own mercy upon our sin. Therefore, our great need this morning is to hear the wonderful news of the gospel and to receive afresh the certainty of our own forgiveness. Let me be plain. Christ forgives the debt of sin. This is the great announcement of Scripture. It's the great plea of the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become as wool. Christ forgives sin. And what is amazing in the wisdom of God is that he then places forgiven sinners into a community which he calls his church, and which we now deal with one another as we've been dealt with. He announces pardon and then places us in a family where the means by which you enter this family is that you too are a forgiven debtor. We then, because of that, can live lives of openness and unhindered fellowship freely confessing sin to one another and forgiving one another because of the mercy that the king has bestowed on us. So really, like Christ, we can live as hope-filled realists. We live as hope-filled realists. We understand, and we are those who even expect that we will be sinned against. But we are not downcast and pessimistic about that. Nor are we naive optimists because the gospel anchors us in this hope-filled reality. We can be sinned against, but we can do so with a gracious smile and a warm embrace, knowing that the greater debt that we owe to God has been forgiven. So how can I not forgive you, sister, brother? So in light of all this, May God continue to grow us in in greater awe of the mercy that he has shown to us that we might grow in our quickness to forgive one another and truly enjoy what Christ has given to us as his people. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice this morning to hear that you are a merciful king, that you are a king who extends forgiveness and pardons debt. Father, we are those that your spirit has convicted and convinced that we are massive debtors and that the weight of our sin would be like a a millstone around our neck were it not for your gracious pardon. So we ask, Father, help us to remember that we are great sinners, but that you are a great Savior. And from the greatness of the salvation, Lord, would you transform us to be those who gladly and repeatedly forgive one another from the heart. Guard us, Lord, against all pride and self-righteousness and any bitterness. Lord, we ask that you would soften our hearts and cause the good seed of your word to bear fruit 30, 60, even 100-fold in our midst. 
And we ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and our King. Amen.